Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By Vortex Optics. With the VIP warranty, their unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. And Quest Nature Tours, offering expert led small group tours for bird and nature lovers since 1970. Explore exceptional journeys around the world at QuestNatureTours.com. And Beautio Books, an independent, family-owned bookstore carrying one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. BeautioBooks.com. Good morning and good afternoon and good evening and welcome to our show number 933. Well, how do long-distance avian migrants power their flights? We thought that question had long been answered, long since been answered, but it turns out that conventional wisdom might need a little adjustment, as we'll learn from an expert guest on today's show. And we'll begin our show with another part of our relatively new tradition, avian audio postcards. This time one from Big Bend National Park in Texas, and one from a backyard here in eastern Massachusetts. The courtesy of Jim Randolph out in the Lone Star State, and from our own Debbie Bleacher here in the Bay State. Here's Jim and friends. Good morning, Ray and Talking Birds listeners. I was leaving the Dugout Wells area of Big Bend National Park just now when I saw two common ravens sitting in a snag in the heat of the 2 p.m. West Texas sun. As I was photographing them, one leaned down to the other in what seemed to be an affectionate snuggle. Of the many memorable moments I've had on this native Texan's first visit to Big Ben, this was among the most touching. In the immortal words of our fearless leader, Freya, Bye! Hi, this is Debbie Bleacher. I'm watching a flock of wild turkeys walk around near my house. There are four females and two males, and the males are in full display. The males are iridescent all over their bodies, and their tails are fanning out. Um, They've got a lot of white on their heads, and their wattles are bright red. That's below the chin, and even looks almost like a unicorn horn on top of the head when they're really in full display. And there's this necklace of feathers Actually, it looks like a pendant hanging down from the chest. My gosh. And these two males, they're just playing side by side. They don't really seem threatened by each other. All the females, of course, are just walking away going, yeah, whatever. (laughs) See you later. All right, we'll see you later. Debbie, thank you for that beautiful audio postcard. And thank you, Jim. Jim has left his native Mississippi. No, his native Texas is really where it is, but he lives in Mississippi, visiting Texas there and checking out those common ravens and uh, some Chihuahuan ravens he told us he saw right after that. Send us an audio postcard. We'd love to get them. We're getting lots of them, but we want more. Send it to Ray at TalkingBirds.com. Just make a little recording on your smartphone and send us the file, Ray at TalkingBirds.com. Well, speaking of eastern Massachusetts again, I'd like to say thanks to folks at the Milton Public Library just outside of Boston. I had the pleasure of presenting a little PowerPoint presentation called The Magic of Migration there just recently. So thanks to Jean and Diane for their help and hospitality 
and in a few minutes we'll find out why I had to take back some of the things I said <laughs> in that little presentation. And another thank you to our dear friends Candy and Chris Powell in Jamestown, Rhode Island. Candy hosted a table representing Talking Birds at the Jamestown Conservation Commission's Earth Day Fair back on the 22nd of April. Thank you, Candy. Well, Chris showcased his wonderful Connecticut Island Raptor project at the fair. Nice work, Chris. What we have there is our mystery bird. This would be a preview of that mystery bird contest, which is uh, coming along a little bit later on in this morning's show. We'll give you some uh, clues here about that mystery bird. That's if we can find them. We had to put this on the laptop here this morning. Anyway, it's a large white bird. It has a black bill. See how I'm fudging along here trying to uh, figure out what I'm trying to say here? I'm going to find this in a moment. Those are a couple of uh, kind of skimpy clues there, but don't worry, we have uh, we have more. So our bird, as I mentioned, is a large white bird. More details about it would be, for example, it has a long straight neck. The face is black, and the black bill usually has a yellow spot at the base. Our bird breeds across the top of North America. It winters in large flocks along both coasts of the U.S., feeding on plants and mollusks usually by plunging its neck into shallow water in lakes and ponds. A little uh, info about the mystery bird, helping you to get ready for that when we do the contest officially in just a bit. We have beautiful prizes from Beautio Books, home of one of the largest selections of birding books in the world, and a big bag of delicious bird-friendly shade-grown birds and beans coffee. Prizes there on the upcoming Mystery Bird Contest. Well, here's what we're calling the conservation bold stroke of the week. It's a major win for the planet as the state of New York has become the first state in the country to ban natural gas and other fossil fuels in most new buildings. There are exceptions for large commercial and industrial buildings, which house stores and hospitals, laundromats and restaurants. But the impact on new residential buildings will be significant since buildings account for nearly a third of New York State's planet warming emissions. So a conservation bold stroke of the week by the folks in the great state of New York. And here's a salute to more Talking Birds ambassadors, folks who are helping us spread the word about the wonder of birds and the vital importance of conservation. Thank you to Darren O. from Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Darren says, I was referred by the rocking owl coholic. That's like somebody who's addicted to owls. Coleman, who's also an ambassador from Wheat Ridge. Thank you, Darren. And thank you again, rocking owl alcoholic Coleman. That is hard to say. And thanks to Scott W. from Harwich, Massachusetts. He says, enjoying birding from Sand Pond in Harwich kind of just a stone throw from the Birdwatcher's General Store. Thank you, Scott. And a special hello to Emily in Fairfax, Virginia, who said she received her ambassador cards a couple of days ago after a slight delay. She sent us a note saying she planned to hand out a bunch of those cards at the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival this weekend in West Friendship, Maryland. Thank you, Emily. Easy to become a Talking Birds ambassador, and it's a wonderful thing to do, we think. Just go to the contact button, uh, make that the Get Involved button, sorry, the Get Involved button, 
at TalkingBirds.com to see how to do it. Still to come today, we'll learn about some fascinating and maybe game-changing research about how long-distance migrant birds power their flight. And we welcome special guest Dr. Corey Elo. We'll also present a Let's Ask Mike segment live from Cape Cod about red phalaropes and red red robins. And up next, we'll learn the connection between snakeskins and birch bark in today's featured feathered friend presented by Birdwatching Magazine. For more than a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Nesting birds face threats from many predators, including snakes. But today's featured feathered friend makes the best of the snake problem, as you'll hear in a moment. Our friend is the great crested flycatcher. Check out our Facebook page to see a photo of this large, handsome flycatcher with its reddish-brown back and wings, lemon-yellow belly, rusty-brown tail, and bushy-brown crest. That description fits both males and females. The great crested flycatcher is known to place the shedded skin of snakes in its nest. Ornithologists at Arkansas State University, who did some research on this behavior, found that the skin serves as a deterrent to would-be egg predators that might themselves become prey to snakes. Two species of animals that occur in most of the great crested flycatcher's nesting range are flying squirrels and rat snakes. The flying squirrels will eat bird eggs, and the rat snakes will eat flying squirrels. The snakes would eat the eggs too, but it's squirrels that are thought to be the greater threat. In the research experiment, flying squirrels ate the eggs in 20% of the nests that were without snakeskins, but ate no eggs at all in the nests to which snakeskins were attached. When no snakeskins are available, great crested flycatchers will sometimes use birch bark, onion skins, cellophane, or even plastic wrappers instead. We haven't found studies that suggest whether these substitute items are as effective as the snakeskins in predator deterrents. This bird, which summers in the eastern U.S. and as far west as Wyoming and Texas, and winters mostly in Central America and northern South America, can be difficult to see. The male often gives his courtship and territory-defending songs from well within the forest canopy. Although, when hunting, he'll find an exposed perch for a clear view of prey items and the flight path by which to reach them. Threats to great crested flycatcher survival include pesticides and other contaminants, habitat degradation, and collisions with windows and buildings. But its conservation status is in the least concern category, thanks in part to its extremely large range. It's today's featured feathered friend, Myarchus crinitus, the great crested flycatcher. Welcome again to our show number 933. We're continuing our research theme. Here's a headline from University of Massachusetts Amherst. The surprising science behind long-distance bird migration. New research led by UMass Amherst shows that birds kick off their nonstop intercontinental flights with a protein boost. 
So that word protein seems to be a surprise since it's long been thought, I believe, that fat was what fueled the birds at the start of their migrations and through most of it. But this new research seems to show that's not exactly the case. To help explain, we're joined by lead author of the paper detailing this new research, Dr. Corey Elo from UMass Amherst. Good morning, Corey. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Ray. You're welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, what gave you the idea to pursue this research, and what did you discover? Well, my advisor at the time, my PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Alex Gerson, um, he had done some of this work up in Canada um, at the Advanced Facility for Avian Research, and he found some really interesting findings about how birds are using, using protein in some shorter flights in the wind tunnels, mm-hmm. um, basically these treadmills for birds. Um, and he found that they were burning protein um, uh, at different rates, depending on the humidity conditions they were experiencing in flight. And so um, my PhD research kind of built on that to try to figure out exactly how they're using this protein in flight. So Professor Gerson said something like this, no one has been able to measure protein burn to this extent in birds before, he says, we knew that birds burn protein, but not at this rate, and not so early in their flights. And this is maybe the really most amazing part. The quote is, what's more, these small songbirds can burn 20% of their muscle mass and then build it all back in a matter of days. Big surprise, no? Yeah, they're really incredible animals. I mean, these these birds, they'll they'll land and they'll have almost no muscle left. You'll see some birds where the muscle is basically right up against the breastbone. You know, it's not it's not a chicken you'd buy in the store. Um, there's barely any muscle left on this thing, and uh, within a few days, they'll build that right back up, and that muscle will be their flights um, for long periods of time. So. They have this incredible tissue flexibility that is just kind of unparalleled. It it certainly sounds like it. And maybe some implications for humans, right? We talked uh, before the show about this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't really know how they're able to do this, how they're able to defend this muscle function while it's going through such drastic changes. If we saw this in a mouse, it would probably die. Um, Mm. And yet... You know, if we can explore these mechanisms a little bit, we can get some idea of maybe how it can translate to human health, um, things like muscle wasting disease. Mm-hmm. Well, you talked about uh, use of the wind tunnel. I wonder if you'd explain that a bit, how, how, that, uh, how you go about uh, using a wind tunnel for this. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really fun, um, especially <laughs> during migration, because these birds, when the sun sets, they want to be flying. Mm-hmm. So they're they're already ramped up. They're ready to go. So really, at around 8 o'clock at night, we would take these birds that we have in captivity and bring them over to this dark wind tunnel with a single light in it, kind of to mimic moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just kind of let them go into this wind. And they think they're migrating. They want to be migrating. So they just kind of take off and fly. And um, some of them even start flight calling at high rates in here. So they, they kind of get in the zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really want to be flying at this time. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's really like a bird treadmill. Uh-huh. In the zone. I like that. By the way, I saw this study about gray <laughs> catbirds from uh, University of Rhode Island, where they found the flight muscles of these birds were larger during fall migration than in summer. Another surprise? 
Yeah, that is a little surprising. Um, you know, typically we think of spring migration as the real race. All the birds are rushing north to try to get to their breeding grounds. Um, but having the muscle be larger in the fall is kind of a mystery. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are so many other things that might go into this. It could be, you know, maybe predation risk. Maybe they need to have these large muscles and maintain these large muscles to escape predators or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it could also be that um, these muscles are really a source of water. So birds are really good at burning fat, mm -hmm. but fat is stored without water. But our muscles and our organs, those all contain water bound up with the protein. So mm -hmm. you can kind of think of it like a water reservoir. If they're breaking down this protein, they might be getting water as well. Something we're used to up in this part of the country, if not this time of year, is shivering. And I know this is going to be uh, your next area of research. And, and you're kind of asking the question here, as the world warms, which method of coping with the cold, shivering or migrating, might be the better option for survival? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because you can think of both methods staying resident and dealing with the cold or migrating to escape the cold as two different adaptations to seasonality in the their annual cycle. And we don't really know why birds migrate versus staying put. And mm -hmm. the funny thing is that they require kind of similar mechanisms. Both, hmm. both of them require this kind of endurance exercise. Um, one to shiver all night long um, and another to fly all night long. Um, and so I'm really interested in kind of comparing these two strategies and seeing which one might win out um, if mm -hmm. climate change keeps kind of moderating the climate as as time goes on. Indeed. Fascinating. Corey Elo recently competed, completed his Ph.D. with Dr. Alex Gerson at UMass Amherst, researching the physiology of long-distance Migration in birds, he's now a postdoctoral researcher focusing on seasonal acclimatization to temperature and photo period. In Songbirds, you can learn more about him, including the study we've just been talking about under the blog heading on his website. That's CoreyElo.com, C-O-R-Y, CoreyElo, E-L-O-W-E, CoreyElo.com. Corey, thank you so much for being with us, and I hope we'll talk soon about that uh, other new research. Sounds great. Thanks, Ray. Dr. Corey Elo here on Talking Birds. Up next, our mystery bird contest in just one minute. The flutter of a tail feather. The flash of a wing bar in mid-flight. You don't always have a lot of time to identify a bird in nature, let alone to appreciate its beauty. But with Vortex Optics, you'll have the power to bring every wild moment closer. When you choose Vortex, you're choosing to have a partner in the field as passionate about nature as you are. Whether you're spotting old friends on the backyard feeder or packing for a once-in-a-lifetime trip to add a few species to your life list, Vortex offers a full range of optics and optics accessories for every birder and every budget. And whether the birds are taking you to another state or another country, you're always covered by the Vortex VIP warranty an unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. If you'd like to learn more, or if you need help choosing your next optic, give Vortex a call at 1-800-4-VORTEX or visit vortexoptics.com. 
There's that mystery bird and a whole flock of them as well. And it's our mystery bird contest. This is the part where we say, please call us as soon as you can so we have time for our contest. We do tend to run out of our time, in part because of our poor clock management and also because uh, lots of folks seem to want to call in after the show has ended. So we invite you to call us as soon as you can. Here's the number, 781-837-4900. That's 781 837 Four nine hundred. Our mystery bird is a large, all-white waterfowl with a long, straight neck. The face is black, and the black bill usually has a yellow spot at the base. Our bird breeds across the top of North America. It winters in large flocks along both U.S. coasts, feeding on plants and mollusks by plunging its neck, usually into shallow water in lakes and ponds. So those are some of the clues, or those are, in fact, those are all the clues, but we have some wonderful prizes to go along. A $15 gift certificate is one for Beautio Books, home of one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. And a big bag of our favorite coffee, delicious, bird-friendly, shade-grown, birds and beans coffee. No, cont- uh, no direct or correct answer means a drawing will determine our winner, so give it a try at 781 781- Eight three seven four nine hundred seven eight one eight three seven four nine hundred. Meanwhile, Mike O'Connor from beautiful Cape Cod is along next here. Let's ask Mike live in just one minute. Beautio Books carries one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. New, used, and rare books covering everything from backyard birding to general ornithology, from field guides to photography skills, biography, fiction, and humor. You'll find it all, along with the knowledgeable customer service you've been looking for, in one convenient place. Beautyobooks.com. B-U-T-E-O. Beautyobooks.com. Quest Nature Tours has offered exceptional tours for bird and nature lovers since 1970. In 2023, join us in search of colorful bird life and jaguars in Brazil or on our brand new Zambia Safari. See amazing wildlife and explore habitats with travel companions who truly enjoy nature. Talkin' Birds listeners receive a $150 credit towards their first tour. Visit QuestNatureTours.com today. Birds and much more, guaranteed. Mike O'Connor is there at the famous Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod, and he has seen some pretty extraordinary sightings just recently, as we're about to find out. Good morning, Mike. Uh, yeah, good morning, Ray. Yeah, last week was a miserable, miserable Sunday. Not, uh, very pleasant here today, but um, at the end of the day, some some birders were in, some of these young birders, and um, they were talking to the rest of my staff, and when they were leaving, I, I heard one of them say something about, oh, see the fowl ropes. And they said, okay, and I heard that. I came running and tell me about the fowl ropes, because, you know, we don't get to see those. Fowl ropes are shorebirds. They're small shorebirds, but much bigger than a dove, I guess, and they don't often come to the shore. They're shorebirds that don't like the shore. They spend about 90, no, more than that, about 11 months of the year out, out by the continental shelf out in the ocean, and we don't often get to see them. But some had been blown in by the, that storm that we had, so... Um, 
I raced down to see them, but it was pretty miserable. But the next day, they were still there. And it, and it wasn't like a dozen. It was hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them all wow. along the shore, really close. We got to look at them. They were in breeding plumage. They were red, mostly red fellows, but they were redneck fellows. So they were the stuff that we don't often get to see or never get to see in those numbers. It was kind of a big deal. I'm glad I eavesdropped on the conversation because <laughs> I went down and got to see him. Yeah, you've been. I know you eavesdrop on conversations all the time, so I'm glad this one really paid <laughs> off there. That's pretty good. Well, we're too envious to talk about that anymore. How about robins and worms? We had a question from uh, Debbie up in Vermont um, about, uh, about uh, worms, and she wanted to know, that, uh, you know, what did robins do before there were worms? Because she found out that, you know, there are native uh, worms in the U.S., but I guess not north of Pennsylvania, for example. So um, up in our part of the country, at least, there there weren't worms for a long time. So what did robins eat? Oh, yeah, the robins that we, we see, actually through most of the country, are invasive or introduced species of worms. Even the native places with native worms, they're a little bit deeper down in the soil. So the worms that the robins are getting on your lawn or the fields, uh, for the most part, it, these introduced species, and that's a whole different situation. But what, what, the, what the robins did it, it, before we brought in worms for them was they ate everything else. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. so robins are just taking advantage of the availability. So before that, they ate spiders, they ate sow bugs, they ate millipedes, they picked through the leaf litter and, and ate things. And most of the robins, well, a good percentage of the robins live up in Canada where there are no lawns. They just, mm. so they're, they're taking advantage of whatever invertebrates they can get or insects that they can get. But most of their diet is fruit anyhow. About mm-hmm. 60% of what the robins eat is fruit. And it's probably earthworms are probably closer to 15%. Mm. And that's because it's available now. But before it was available, um, they were doing just fine. As a matter of fact, a lot of the things on the lawn that we uh, that the robins come to, you kind of worry about because, at least in my neighborhood, everybody treats their lawn, mm. and that's not good for the robins. And a lot of that so worm, the robins, I was going to say, a lot, of, a lot of that worm worm catching is for the uh, the nestlings as well, right? Well, they do. They they feed that right. You right, no, yeah, hundred percent right. A lot of a lot of birds switch from either seeds or fruit to give the nestlings insects, and that's a whole whole uh, whole bunch of different birds. But the what we think is when the robin runs along. And, and catches the worms by tilting their head. A lot of people used to think, oh, they're listening for the worm. Yeah. Well, it turns out worms aren't that noisy. So they're not listening for the worm. They're just, uh, they're, they turn their head so their eye can focus in on the ground. And when the ground kind of quivers a little bit, pluck, they pluck it out. All right. Well, Mike, thank you for clarifying that. And uh, maybe next time you can tell us why there are no lawns in Canada. Because <laughs> they're smart, that's why. I didn't know that. <laughs> All right, Mike. <laughs> Talk to you Talk next to week. You. All right. You got it, man. Go for Every Wednesday, Birdwatching Magazine sends an e-newsletter full of information of interest to birdwatchers, including recent news stories about birds, conservation, and science, photography tips, stories about places to go birding, bird ID tips, and much more. Best of all, the newsletter is free. Sign up today at birdwatchingdaily.com slash newsletter. And we return to the mystery bird contest for real now. Uh, and see if we can identify this uh, mystery mystery bird. Man, that is loud. 781-837-4900 is the number. And Sherry is in Raynham, Massachusetts. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning. Good morning. You heard our clues and all that. What do you uh, say about the mystery bird? 
My granddaughter says it's a whooping crane. That's what your granddaughter says. Okay. Well, uh, you can break it to her gently that it is actually not not a whooping crane, but uh, crane. But tell her that's a top quality guess. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, let's see if our friend Larry has an answer for us. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Good morning. It's the tundra swan. There is no doubt in your mind about that, Larry, which is a good thing because um, why? Oh, because it's correct. Yeah. Great. Nice job. Good work. Larry, stay on the line, and Jesse will get your info, and we'll send you prizes. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Correctly identifying our mystery bird, the tundra swan. Next week on our show, birding and herping. Special guest Joseph Saunders will explain how enjoying other creatures can enhance your birding experience. One other quick thing. You can now send us a message uh, vocally, if you like, um, instead of just by writing, if you like speaking instead. Uh, you can go to our website, and, um, and under the contact uh, tab there, you'll see how you can send us a voice message anytime. It's really, really easy to do. Just click the big red button. That is it for today. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next week. The bird show. I like that. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. Orleans, Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By Vortex Optics. With a VIP warranty. Their unlimited lifetime promise to keep you and your optic covered. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. And Quest Nature Tours, offering expert-led small group tours for bird and nature lovers since 1970. Explore exceptional journeys around the world at questnaturetours.com. And Beautyo Books, an independent, family-owned bookstore carrying one of the largest selections of birding books in the world. Beautyobooks.com.